From ADP, this is Better For It. I'm Francesca Ramsey. You may know me from my videos about race and pop culture on YouTube, or maybe you're my mom. Hey, mom. I've written for MTV and Comedy Central, and I even wrote a book about my mistakes on my journey to become an activist. On this show, I talk with business leaders about their biggest mistakes and how they've learned from them. In fact, those lessons inspire what they're working for today. Most people assume that all tech founders have the same journey. They make their way to Silicon Valley. It's a rocky start at first. Venture capitalists discover you, invest millions of dollars in your startup, and then you're number one in the app store. Well, that's not exactly the story of my guest, tech entrepreneur Joa Spearman. I had an eviction notice. My car was about to get repossessed. I had went through all my savings. My credit cards were maxed. I had been floating the business. Like, I was personally probably $200,000 into the business. Joa is the CEO and co-founder of Localer, a tech startup that helps travelers experience cities the way locals do. Localer was named the best travel app by The Today Show, Forbes, Time, and The Guardian. Joa had a couple of high-profile jobs and started a few other businesses before he launched Localer. Just to give you a sense of how driven he is, Joa says he applied for 108 college scholarships on his own. Yeah, he secured 31 of them. Also, one time he went on 23 job interviews in two days. I just can't get over how self-motivated you are. I really appreciate that about your story. Well, I think, you know, a big part of it is because my mom was working two jobs when we were kids, my dad wasn't in the picture. And, you know, we lived on food stamps. We lived in, you know, a one-bedroom place. You know, just being in an environment where you're very aware of your financial circumstances can be really challenging. And then it definitely instilled in me a very keen understanding of life is what you make it mentally. Wow, I love that. I mean, knowing a little bit about your story, I know that you launched your first business back then. So clearly you were very inspired by your mom and the way that she was able to pull things together. Can you tell me a little bit about that bold move that started you into your first business? Yeah, so I was in fifth grade and my class went on a field trip. And I was the only kid in my class that couldn't go on the field trip because it was a $90 field trip. Mm. And I very much remember not thinking about the money, but thinking about this idea that there was a whole set of experiences and access that I didn't have as a result of that. So the very next year, I saw my middle brother, he and his best friend in middle school that were taking a a lawnmower from a neighbor and going to neighbors and asking them if they could cut their grass for $20. You know, maybe they were cutting, you know, four or five people's yards every week. And I looked at that and I was like, man, I can probably push a lawnmower too. And I didn't have a friend to do it with. So I was like, I'll just do it on my own. So I went to the (laughs) same neighbor and borrowed the same lawnmower (laughs) and went to the same neighbors and said, hey, I'll cut your grass for $15. And (laughs) so I just kind of price (laughs) undercut them. And, uh, you know, by the next summer, I was making, you know, six, seven hundred dollars doing okay, wait, that. So how how old were you at this time? Eleven years old. So at eleven years old, 
you said, you know what? I'm going to cut my overhead. It's just going to be just me. <laughs> I think he's less. I'm going to offer a service for less than my competitor, which is my brother. <laughs> I mean, it's just so cool how throughout your childhood, you were constantly striving to be more, achieve more, figure out what it is your purpose was. Where do you think that came from? Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my grandmother would tell you to this day when I was four years old, she would say, she would ask us all what we wanted to do. And I would always say, I couldn't even fully say the word, but I would say, been a man. <laughs> so, so I was, I had a very, oh I don't know God, why. That is so cute. <laughs> so, um, I hope that you, you need to use Bidden Man somewhere <laughs> in your company. In the, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna plant that seed. It needs to be on a business card or on a sweatshirt or something. It's just so cute. Yeah. <laughs> Joa grew up for the most part in Texas, and he was the first person in his family to graduate from college. He wanted to go to business school, but he didn't get in, so he studied public relations instead. And when he graduated in 2005, he got a job in D.C., writing speeches for the director of FEMA. He started right in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. It was an intense time, and he hit the ground running and didn't stop until a few years later, when Obama was elected. And within a week, Joa was moving back to Austin for a change of pace. Did you feel like, as a Black man yourself, his election inspired you? Because I know for me, myself and, like, every Black person I knew, Mm -hmm. we were all like, we can do this. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's definitely part of it. I think the other thing that was a part of it was that I also realized that what I was doing wasn't creative. And it wasn't very entrepreneurial. That's when I started getting to a point where I understood what entrepreneurship was. And I kind of started realizing, man, that stuff I was doing when I was in middle school, cutting people's grass and all that stuff, that was closer to what I really want to do and where I really feel fully alive. And like I'm using all the skills that I have. And so I moved back to Austin. I wrote down this goal and I said, I'm going to start a business every year for 10 years until one of them clicks and feels like something I can do for a while. Joa started a social media agency where he did marketing for brands. But it didn't click. He wanted to do more creative work. So he did some soul searching to find his next business idea. I was like, well, what are things that I like? When I lived in D.C., I would always go to New York or Philly or Baltimore or whatever. And there would be sneaker boutiques. And sneaker boutiques weren't just like these retail stores. They were kind of like these community hubs. And I was like, man, Austin doesn't really have too many of those. So what about opening one of those? So I started doing research and I started meeting with other sneaker boutique owners around the country. And I realized one of the things that was problematic for them was that they had all this inventory that they couldn't unload. This is in the middle of the recession. They're sitting on like, you know, dozens of sneakers that they can't sell. And so I was like, man, what if I buy their shoes from them and I do a pop-up shop Mm. in Austin? So what I would do is I would go to these sneaker boutique owners who were probably about to go out of business and say, hey, how much did you pay for those shoes? And they would say, oh, I paid them $32 a pair. And then I'm trying to sell them for $75 a pair. And I would say, okay, I'll give you $32 a pair for these shoes. So they would recoup their cost and I would get the shoes. And so then I would pop up with my products at different places in Austin. So rap shows, hip hop shows, music festivals. You would bring all the shoes with you. Yeah. How were you transporting them? I had this carpenter 
who um, who do cabinetry in hotels and apartment buildings. I had him build me like a custom kind of mobile shelving unit. What? So I would set up these mobile shelves and in bars and, and music venues and that kind of thing and sell, you know, more shoes in two or three hours than most boutiques sold in a day or two. What made you think that this was going to work? Because it's kind of a out there idea. Yeah, I mean... It was so cool. I just thought that was what was going to make it work. It was a really fun business, and no one had seen anything like it. What kind of customers were you attracting? Oh, I mean, this is like, obviously, millennials, sneakerheads, mm-hmm. people who collect, you know, dozens, hundreds of pairs of sneakers. Um, and then also, surprisingly, a lot of women who never fancy themselves sneaker people. Really? You know, because what would happen is women that normally wore flats or, like, high heels or something, they wouldn't see themselves in sneakers so they were the people who were definitely not going to go to a sneaker boutique. They were oh. not going to go to a brick-and-mortar store. But you bringing the shoe to them, suddenly they yeah. were open to it. Yeah, so they would see stuff that they had never seen. and be like, that's so cool. And, and I'd be like, you should try it on. I'd be like, no, that's not for me. I'd be like, no, you should just try it on and see. Would they try it on, like, right there oh, yeah. in the bar? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you did that for a few months, and then what? The pop-ups were going so well, and I was getting so into it that there was this word of mouth happening. One of the people that got to know the business was a guy who owned a popular running shoe store conglomerate kind of in Austin. They had like maybe six or seven locations. And he was like, I have this location downtown that I'm not using. You should use it. He basically gave me this space for free. Wow. So what did you do with the space? Oh, man, it was... It was amazing. I mean, I still have, to this day, people that met me then, they're like, man, you got to do that again. So the shop was called Sneak Attack. So I kind of had this very like martial arts Mm. theme. I had like ninja stars. All the price tags were ninja stars. (laughs) And I had these two big pieces of art. It made people feel like they were being transported to like Tokyo, you know, probably like hip hop music playing. And then there was this wall, this white wall all the shoes would be there and you know these are like colorful dynamic looking cool shoes i mean i really had people people would come and hang out with me like half the day or on the weekends like all these people on bikes would come and just like park their bikes in front of the shop and just hang out and i would have music playing so you could hear down the street you know so i i kind of created the community and put a lot of people together that weren't used to being together so in that way it really did work and it really did show me that that was the the beginning of me really learning what I'm really great at as a business person, Mm -hmm. which was about building community. I mean, I have to ask, why did you decide to do a brick and mortar shop? Considering all the research you had done, all the sneaker shop owners you had talked to, you knew this was going to be a risky business bet. Yeah. You know what? It was like the bright, shiny object. Mm. And one thing that you learn as an entrepreneur is that there are always going to be bright, shiny objects that are coming at you yeah. that are off in the side. And, you know, you can run towards them and wreck your business, or you can learn how to, like, have discernment and move away from them. And for me, you know, me running my first real business, I had, like, a physical presence and getting all this, like, press and attention because I was doing these pop-ups. It just made me kind of, my eyes were bigger than my stomach, so to speak. Right. Because the research, obviously, would definitely was like the siren saying like, hey, don't do this. But, you know, hubris was saying, oh, you can pull this off. You know, you're different. You know, you're different. You're better. You can do this. And it's like, well, no, you should probably look at the data. (laughs) So what happened? Um, The problem was that I did all this 
and it fundamentally changed the business model for my business, like changed the margins, it changed the cost base, all this stuff without me changing the business model. Like I didn't actually change the financial model of how to do my business. Right. Um, I had two employees that it was becoming very hard to pay. And then I was having to make choices like, okay, do I pay them or do I get more inventory to try to sell more product? Right. And it was like, I was having to make those kinds of choices like multiple months in a row. I just, I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I said I was going to do a business every year and maybe this isn't it. And so I kind of like fell forward by taking the good parts of what I was doing with the pop-up shop and the community that I built around the sneakers and turned it into this thing for South by Southwest. So thankfully, you know, that was an early lesson in you never lose, you just win or you learn. Mm, I'm hearing all of these things I want you to put on t-shirts. I don't know if <laughs> t-shirts, <laughs> I don't know if that's part of your new business model, but I need a businesswoman t-shirt and you never lose, you actually just learn. I love that so much. Mm-hmm. So that thing Joe just said he did for South by Southwest was actually a brand new event at the festival called Style X. It showcased new designers, sneakers, streetwear, music, and even had a fashion show. And in a way, it was very similar to his mobile sneaker pop-up. So how long did you end up doing this pop-up at South by Southwest? So I did that for three years. You know, the difference with my sneaker boutique was that I was always doing a pop-up, like, or I was always in the shop, right? I was it was an every day of the year business or a pop-up was happening every week. I always had something to do. The difference with the South by thing was that I was literally planning for an entire year for a two-day event. Right. And it felt like I, I kind of felt like I had become like kind of like this like glorified wedding planner. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, this is cool. Like I love these two days, but the high of these two days is not enough for like the lows and the lulls of like the whole year. Right. And again, Another scenario happened where the kind of the universe spoke to me. I met the founder and CEO and also the chief operating officer for, at the time, the fastest growing tech company in Austin. That company was digital marketing firm Bazaar Voice. Joe got a job there working in business and marketing strategy, but he still had his eyes on doing his own thing. What business ideas are starting to percolate at that time? Well, I was leading the travel strategy at this company and really helping them get an understanding of like where they could grow in the travel industry, what the weaknesses were, what the opportunities were. And so for myself, I was like, man, I'm traveling a lot. I don't want to know where tourists go. I want to know where locals go. Um, I'm always trying to find a, you know, a bellhop or a bartender or somebody to talk to and ask like, where should I eat? Where should I drink? Where should I shop? All this stuff. And there should be a way to democratize that information and to gather it and aggregate it and share it. So that's kind of where the seeds for Local were planted. And that's how Localer, his renowned travel app, came to be. But first it started as a website. What we thought was, let's have locals share where they go. So when we launched, we had, you know, these 50 or 60 places recommended in Austin. You know, we had recommendations like the best places to get barbecue. But we also had crazy stuff like the best places to make out with a stranger. Yeah. So when we started, we had this like kind of outrageous kind of like viral content, you know, so. um, That's really clever because that's something you're not going to find. Yeah. On any of those other sites that will remain nameless during this interview. Exactly. 
after the break, Joa tries to figure out how to turn hyper-local Austin recommendations into a national travel platform. Better For It is a podcast from ADP. ADP believes that the things we work for are what define us. And they're imagining a world where nothing gets in the way of doing great work, not even our biggest mistakes. Much more than payroll, ADP also provides best-in-class HR, talent, time, and benefits, all designed to clear the way for you and your people to achieve what you're working for. Back to my conversation with Joa Spearman. When we left off, Joa's idea for listing hyperlocal happenings and unique destinations had become a website, and it was getting popular in Austin. So how big was the Localer team when you first launched? It was just my co-founder and I. We were the only employees for the first two years. And we went our first three years never having more than three months of money in the bank. Wow. We were constantly hustling. We would have, you know, $12,000 in the bank, you know, that kind of thing. Like That's terrifying. For the first, yeah, it really was. We have all this vision, all this, all these ideas, but we don't have the resources to pursue them. And we grew. We like, we hit all these numbers. We had all these metrics that people said we were supposed to have to get venture capital funding. And literally none of them would invest. So what'd you do? So I really had to think about like, okay, like, why is this happening? And and this is where I, I'm, I'm reading about, I'm experiencing it, and I'm talking to other founders, and I'm realizing that, okay, some of this is that they're scared of the space that we're in, you know? And then some of this is, you know, there are racial biases that are at play here mm-hmm. that are preventing them, these VCs, from viewing me and my business the same way maybe they're viewing someone else's business. Right. So I had to be really honest with myself about the likelihood of being able to go out and raise this VC. That's really tough. The situation is way more complicated than just flat-out rejection. So where did this leave you financially? So we had been going for almost two years, and I had an eviction notice. My car was about to get repossessed. I had went through all my savings. My credit cards were maxed. Like, because I had been floating the business. Like, I was personally probably $200,000 into the business. Wow. And we are like, you know, this this may be it. But that wasn't it. How'd you pivot from the venture capital model that clearly wasn't working for you? Yeah, so I started thinking, what if, what if I start pitching people just as individuals? People who could relate to what we're trying to accomplish. People who could say, yeah, I want to know where locals go. And so I started doing that. And then really what took it to the next level is there's a very vibrant angel network community in Texas, and I went and pitched them all. So now you know, we've probably raised about $5 million from angel investors, you know, all over the country, but really primarily here in Texas. That is amazing. So this bold move really paid off. I mean, $5 million is a lot of money. Did this change how you were running the business? Yeah. I kind of changed the whole strategy for the business. I I focused less on making it about like building this like well-funded, well-resourced product, silver bullet of like rapid growth that was going to make us this Silicon Valley wonder kid. I focused more on the content, more on the community. So give me an example of what you were doing before, like that old strategy. 
What was your first big mistake that illustrates what you were just talking about? In 2015, I used $280,000, spent it on Google and Facebook ads, because that's what the tried and true method was of growth. It's like paying for your growth through social media and AdWords and all this stuff. Wow. And while That's a while ton it, of money. Yeah, it's a ton of money. And while we did grow, we definitely grew. We grew our user base like five times that year. Um, the, the reality is Localer is really focused on authenticity and locals. We were trying to get people who wanted the local coffee shop. And what we were starting to realize was that that Facebook and Google money was actually getting us people who like want to go to Starbucks. Right. And not that there's anything wrong with Starbucks, but it wasn't our user. Just different audience. Totally. Right? Yeah. (laughs) So what did you do to fix the issue when you realized you had wasted or invested this money in a strategy that wasn't really right for your audience? We went back to bread and butter. What that actually meant was going offline. Mm. And we actually, two years ago, we created a print magazine that, you know, it's topic. So we did a food issue. Um, We're doing a people issue next. And, you know, honestly, I wish we had started the magazine day one because it's it's really kind of become like our, our best calling card as to like why we're so much different than everything else that's out there. Even when we pitch clients on digital partnerships where they're going to be using our content for their website or their apps or things like that, the magazine is what does it. Now what we're doing is we're talking to brands that already have millions of customers, millions of users, and we're finding ways to get our content in front of them and their users. So it seems like the lessons are coming at you left and right. Yeah. So earlier I talked about having my sneaker store and when I had the pop-ups, they were doing well, but then I got the brick and mortar and the mistake that I made was kind of having a lot of hubris and thinking that I was different or better. And the lesson I've learned with Localer is very similar, but actually applying the lesson. My grandmother would say, wisdom is knowledge applied. And, you know, if you know better, do better. And so that means you know, getting off Facebook or Google AdWords and finding a better story and a better model for how to grow our business, even if that means slower, even if that means we're not going gangbusters with like crazy numbers and doing something that felt more rooted in quality and authenticity. So how is Localer doing now? You know, again, slower growth, but we continue to do better. We've partnered with JetBlue Airways for the last four years, and now we're looking at even more partnerships. That's great. So what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs? The thing that I always tell young people, entrepreneurs, students, anyone, go work for someone and learn how to help someone else with their dream and their vision and their mission before you try to get other people to help you with your dream, your vision, your mission. I fundamentally know that I am a better business person and I've learned more working for other people, working with other people and supporting someone else's idea as opposed to just trying to constantly convince someone to to follow with mine. I think you learn what kind of leader you want to be. I think you learn what kind of business person you want to be, what kind of employer you want to be, all these things that come. And you probably save so much time, money and energy and heartache getting paid to learn, and then applying those lessons on your own. If you could go back and give yourself some advice when you were first starting out, what would you say? One thing I would tell myself is the outcome that you expect from this is something that you've never seen, especially in tech startup world. 
we all think that the outcome is either, oh, you're going to get bought for a billion dollars by Facebook, or you're going to raise, you know, $50 million from XYZ VC firm. And the quicker that you get that out of your head, then the more you can create your own different and unique outcome. Joa says what he's working for now is to bring Localer to more people. And he's doing that by finding out where people are and getting Localer in front of them. Kind of like what he did with that first business, Sneak Attack, the mobile pop-up sneaker store. Next time I chat with Jane Park, a CEO and entrepreneur who's learned that you can't short circuit having people feel valued. The enemy is time. It's never that you are actually planning to be mean or to burst people's bubble. It was because of the need for speed. That's next time on Better For It. Better For It is a podcast from ADP. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with your friends. You can tweet me at Cheska Lee. There's a link in the show notes. Better For It is produced by Max Gibson and Matilde Orfolino. Andrea Bruce is our editor. Mixed and scored by Molly Bolton. Our theme is composed by Marcus Thorne Bagala. Additional music from Marmoset and Billy Libby. Fact-checking by Gabby Bulgarelli. I'm Francesca Ramsey. Thanks for listening.